Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now, but I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. From our downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 376 of the Really Awful Movies podcast, Titan. In English, that's uh, Titanium, and this is a French-Belgian co-production, the second such film I've discussed actually on the podcast, the other being Adoration which is a psychological coming-of-age slow burn in which a, um, an attendant at an asylum helps a patient escape, and the two of them go on the lam uh, to, I believe it was um, you know, Belgium or Holland or something. You know, I, I think they, some Dutch people intercede on their behalf. Uh, anyway, I was thinking with this movie about the uh, perhaps false dichotomy of uh, style and substance. And uh, I think this may be an issue where there's um, a lot of attempted substance, but ultimately what you're left with is more on, along the lines of style. Uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, Titan shares some of the thematic uh, aspects of David Cronenberg's Crash. And depending on how you feel about that one, you may not take to the conceit of the uh, merger or the juxtaposition of of uh, eroticism with uh, vehicles, you know, what you might call autoeroticism. With uh, with that James Spader film, the David Cronenberg film, I think it it um, heightened the drama by adding some of the, uh, the prosthetic limbs, and but actually also amplified the connection between eroticism and the vehicle through two characters and through multiple characters, and actually telling a more protracted, more involved, and I think ultimately better realized uh, narrative. I think. When it comes to Titan, you have a structure that doesn't really help propel the narrative forward. And just a little background on the plot here. What you have is a young girl who is uh, her, who goes by the name of Alexia. And uh, she is, uh, they, they show her the, the onset of the film and she's become a backseat nuisance to her father as they're driving through the, uh, looks to be the French countryside. It could be Belgium as well, apologies. And uh, her father turns around to uh, reprimand her, and there's a massive crash, and Alexia suffers a skull injury and has a, a, a titanium plate fitted in her head, uh, hence the title of this film, okay? So what you have here is when uh, she's uh, convalescing and recovering, she actually 
disappears and abandons her parents and you meet up with her the the character later is played by Agathe Roussel who's actually a uh, French model and who cuts quite an interesting figure and she's apparently I guess a journalist as well and a founder of a feminist publication and I think some of these themes probably undergird this one here but she is, and this is where I alluded to the crash uh, thematic elements to this movie uh, earlier, where you have Alexia, now an adult, and she has this very, very uh, obvious and very pronounced scar above her ear from the skull injury where she had the plate uh, fitted. And she's right now a, a showgirl at a motor show. And this, when, when you see her, uh, I guess, uh, lolling around the, the vehicles, and uh, it sort of, it really calls to attention the fact that a lot of these auto shows, from what I can tell, I've, uh, I'm not really um, a gearhead or really much in the, into the way of cars. I drive maybe two or three times a year. I'm more like a transit pass subway kind of guy. But uh, what strikes me is that the audiences for these kinds of things, these kinds of shows that uh, unveil the latest and the greatest uh, technology and new models, uh, well, they use models in both senses of the term because these events tend to be wholly male dominated and they tend to have as a side entertainment a bunch of uh, uh, you know scantily clad women and it's almost uh, it almost uh, calls up or conjures up the um, that uh, restaurant chain uh, Hooters in a way I mean you, you, and that further uh, connects the thread that clearly in anyone's eyes links uh, the vehicle with uh, eroticism or, or sexuality and you could see this pretty obviously when uh, I guess the youth culture became more prominent post-war I mean when uh, you had stigmas attached to uh, premarital sex and whatnot there was obviously the lover's lane or the make-out points which uh, provided uh, I guess, free from the prying eyes of the public and, and uh, absent the kind of stigma attached to this, it would be a, a way for uh, younger uh, lovers to meet up and, uh, and well, do their thing, obviously. Now, uh, what happens here is that uh, Alexia is, is, her psychology is, uh, is fused with that of the automobile. So not only should, does she dance provocatively on top of vehicles, she actually, later on in the film, how should we put this? I guess engages in uh, <laughs> engages in escapades with vehicles as well. So that is the most explicit callback to the David Cronenberg movie. Although it's something that is pretty much left as a as almost a, a set piece that's not really developed until later on, and it sort of drops that you know, element as uh, you are shown and the plot reveals that Alexia is actually a serial killer and uses a, uh, a large hairpin to uh, lay waste to her victims. And uh, getting back to what I said earlier about the style and the substance, so that they're trying to infuse a lot of substance where there really isn't because this uh, interesting idea of the fusion between automobile eroticism and and a person's psychology, again, isn't as well developed as it is in Crash. And uh, where I find this narrative uh, structure lacking is the fact that there's really only so much you can um, invest in a film when you're seeing it largely uh, through the eyes of, let's say, a killer rather than the victim. Now, there are exceptions, obviously, and I'll get to that. Um, when it comes to the exceptions, I would say Maniac is the most, the, the Bill Lustig film from 1980 is the most obvious example of living inside the head of a serial killer and 
The reason why that doesn't get exhausting is because Lustig uses a POV of the killer that really adds to the fright and adds to the dread and adds to the urban blight and scares that come with uh, the Frank Zito character in that film. And I think that sort of overcomes whatever uh, narrative apprehension you might have of just having a slow-moving, meandering film where the antagonist in uh, Maniac just basically talks to mannequins and there really is very little in the day in the way of dialogue. And I think that uh, is similarly the case, which is one of the debits to, I think, to Tons, that the fact that you're living with the serial killer and it doesn't really it's to no one's benefit that you're doing so. And I'm thinking also of the uh, incredible film, A Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. And the reason that one works, uh, which also incidentally focuses focuses on the killer and his exploits, is because Otis, who I believe is his sidekick, they have a dynamic between the two of them. And also, I, th I believe, it's been a while, apologies since I've seen that film, but I believe it's Otis's mother that they all live together with. And then it becomes like almost a buddy pick of uh, maniacal uh, savagery. But at least you have one person to bounce off another. Now, where I think uh, Titan falters is when you have uh, the Alexia, the serial killer who's on the lam, and she, uh, as many people who are on the lam do, you know, alters her appearance. And this is where I think the body horror elements really are driven home in a really impactful, <laughs> literally so, and really, really visceral way where you have Alexia breaking her own nose in order to give her face a little bit of a, a different physiognomy because you're having, there are wanted posters being distributed all over the city and uh, she's a wanted woman and uh, has the feeling that people are bearing down on her, what with the uh, body counts um, rising and whatnot. So she's sufficiently, I guess, uh, alters her appearance and, and shaves her hair and whatnot and uh, gets on a bus and gets out of town. There, there's been people, obviously, in the past few months going missing, uh, and this is no doubt, no doubt Alexia is a contributing factor to this. So Alexia, what she does is uh, when she's in the police station, she uh, says that she's one of these missing um, men and and passes herself off as the long-lost son of a fire captain named Vincent, and that's uh, played by really uh, Vincent Lindon, which is, who has a really really uh, strong, solid jaw. It almost reminds me of the, uh, reminds me of, the, of a sort of a French version of Christopher Maloney from Law and Order SVU. He's got that overarching, very masculine uh, uh, presence in the film, and with absent any sort of further interrogation as to how Alexia could be his son. I mean, you're just meant to, or you're compelled to buy into the fact that Vincent's take is the correct one. And his son was supposed to have gone missing, when, or gone, uh, yeah, I guess you could say, or been kidnapped, they don't really say, at around the age of eight or nine. And uh, Alexia is supposed to be a character who's about, uh, let's say, around 18. And so, like, a, a decade has passed, and... Um, the Alexia character, in order to, I guess, to avoid these kinds of conversations of maybe childhood memories that could link her to her ostensible father, she is mute and apparently traumatized uh, playing the character of Adrian to 
I guess, uh, be taken in under uh, Vincent's roof. This is such a bizarre conceit. I mean, it's something that uh, had me lost midway through the proceedings and was something that I don't think this film could really recover from because when there's such a massive plot point that you're just unable to buy into, it just slows things to a halt considerably. And that's not to say that by any means that uh, Titan is a film without merit, because it obviously is. I mean, it's so visually stunning and visually appealing. It has so many elements of uh, Euro horror, if you want to call it that, the best that that uh, entails. And it's a gorgeous film to look at, just stunning cinematography. There's some real surreal, almost Lynchian scenes of uh, slow motion dance. It can almost be a music video where uh, Vincent and his fire hall buddies all uh, dance to I forget what the song was but it's a, a, a strange dynamic between this father and his not real son and uh, Vincent who's also been uh, preserving his strength I guess as fire captain to continue to continue to engage in that very difficult role by injecting steroids into his uh, aging uh, form and it, it's it just adds to the discomfort and the disquiet of this uh, film and it, this one really did a lot of booming business around the world because when you think about it a uh, small limited uh, low budget French and Belgian production earning five million bucks is actually pretty pretty good in this kind of climate so this is a tough sell and uh, as well it should be right there's really little in the way of narrative structure there's just a lot of uh, sort of disjointed set pieces that while impactful don't really uh, coalesce around a, a narrative structure and there's also very long protracted silences of pe uh, people gazing into space and that kind of thing that has people often accusing euro horror or art house films particularly specifically of being uh, pretentious however defined i think you could levy the same criticism against uh, saint maud but there's just large portions of the film in which I mean you could say really nothing nothing happens it's, it's kind of funny uh, part of my viewing this week was also the uh, Steve Jobs biopic and that was uh, written by I believe Aaron Sorkin and uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a movie more voluble and more chatty and more just just all over the map yak fest of a film than that one it must have pages and pages of dialogue as of course Sorkin is known for and I think you can go overboard and uh, you can uh, the, some of the visual elements could be given short shrift if the if a film is too talky. Well, I think that the opposite can be said here, and you have. Uh, again these scenes which again it, it really depends how you view them because there are quite interesting scenes where you have uh, Alexia who you find you come to find out is pregnant who's uh, taping her breast down and in, in, in order to pass herself off as as a as a man and uh, but also secreting motor oil from her uh, vaginal canal is I mean that alone is a very interesting idea and it's done uh, very very impactfully I think the film here is very front-end loaded to the high-impact scares and the body horror and the discomfort and then as things progress you realize that this I think there's not enough here to sustain a, a 108 minute uh, runtime and uh, despite you have uh, Vincent's, uh, I guess, uh, estranged wife coming to see her, like, you know, son in quotes, and you have Alexia being pregnant, and no one seems to be asking the types of questions that really should be asked. And I mean, I don't want to um, uh, spoil the denouement, but it's it's something that 
it, it's just I think I think one of the uh, drawbacks and the pitfalls of watching a Euro horror is just the tendency not to have uh, the the key aspects of 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 a narrative structure and of a uh, script. Uh, being adhered to and that's where someone has to have a challenge that they have to overcome or there has to be some sort of act that they have to carry out and apart from just being on the lamb I don't think that's really enough uh, around which to, to base uh, a story I mean that's just my opinion uh, maybe you have a different one especially if you were like me someone who didn't maybe warm to the uh, Cronenberg crash movie it took me I think two or three viewings to actually get what that one was all about and I finally uh, I think was able to do so but it, it was this is by no means uh, a straight up easy easy to digest film a la the recent Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie which is basically just someone going around killing people and there's there's more to it than here but to the extent that there's much more I'm, I'm sort of on the fence about it I have a similar reaction, I think, to the Suspiria reimagining, wherein uh, I could appreciate a lot of the visuals, uh, although I didn't particularly care for the the tone that it opted for. Right, I appreciated the art and the artfulness of it, but there's something about that one that didn't resonate with me somehow as well. It fell a little bit flat for me, and that has nothing to do with the the absolutely astounding cinematography and really good performances. People have likened this to uh, Takesha Miike's films as well, and, and to the extent that they have a certain unwatchability and, and a certain cringe factor with all the uh, the body horror violence, I, I could sort of see that. I just I just don't know if it has enough enough depth for me. And uh, although I don't share people's sentiment that it was that this is a film that is transphobic in any way, just uh, just because the uh, person is trying to hide their their extremities it's mostly to serve the plot of being on the lamb it has nothing to do with co-opting anyone's identity or any kind of that thing i just am left somewhat mystified by just the, uh, the approbation given to this one, whether it's at Cannes with the Palme d'Or and, and all this, and or TIFF for that matter. There's just so much uh, just praise thrown at this, and I think it falls into the category of film that uh, uh, that is is the kind of film that people feel compelled to like either in the, as is the case with let's say um, us or get out because it's a person of color behind the lens uh, as a director which as as important as it is doesn't mean that you have to disregard your critical faculties and not treat it like any other film as i believe you should and i think that uh, as much as get out was wildly overpraised just because of uh, that fact and of course you should have more uh, people of color uh, lending their voices to the horror space but this one similarly just because of the subject matter it's a uh, you could read into a uh, feminist sub subtext if you want i'm not going to be doing that i'm just l looking at it apolitically and as a as a as as its own entity i just think somehow this is uh, a way for uh, a lot of uh, a way for uh, critics to project their uh, inadequacies <laughs> intellectually maybe to by praising this thing for being smarter than it actually is i really don't think it is particularly that clever and it's kind yeah again it just surprises me to the extent that uh, critics all over the globe lauding this thing like nobody's business and again for the performances fair fair point not have nothing to uh, contest that. So this is the the brainchild of uh, Julie de Cournau. 
a French director, and I'm not familiar with her uh, feature debut called Raw, and it's, uh, uh, although I think there is enough here to warrant me investigating her work further, but uh, again, I'm not wholly sold on this film. I just think that uh, it is a little bit on the, on the gimmicky side. It doesn't retain its, uh, I, I guess th there's a larger metaphor of, uh, of uh, human being becoming like a machine, which is, uh, I think, when you see the, the violence being perpetrated in Ukraine right now, maybe that's an uh, uh, you know, aspect of fusing technology and, uh, and, and evil. That's another thing. But I just don't find that uh, that carries the day enough throughout the whole structure. It just doesn't, I don't know, it, it starts out with these kinds of ideas and then doesn't really fully flesh them out, at least in my opinion. And uh, it's funny, like, um, arty, quirky horror can only take you so far. And I, I was thinking also of the uh, the film uh, Rubber, which is uh, also um, about a, um, it features at its um, heart vehicular themes. I mean, that one is about a runaway tire that goes on a killing spree. And you think that, oh, that's kind of absurd. And, and it is. And that's it, when you have uh, tumbleweeds blowing across the road and you have this this almost whimsical, funny and bizarre, quirky tire just bouncing along. It's hard to really uh, invest 90 minutes worth of your time in that kind of thing when in effect not too too much is happening but the sheer audacity of that as a conceit I think carried the day because you really didn't know well you didn't know literally where it was going right uh, I'm not sure I totally buy into uh, Titan but I'm intrigued by it enough at least to warrant a, a if not wholly uh, invested but at least partly part recommendation for this one and I think it would have been even more impactful had you seen this one in cinema because there are some really really strong very very aggressive really impactful elements of body horror again weighted toward the front end that are really really good I'm gonna have to probably split the difference and go three out of five with this one with a partial recommendation uh, well worth your time I think uh, not sure if it warrants a second viewing but uh, maybe we'll get to it and let enough time pass to see if uh, anything more comes to me uh, regarding uh, this very interesting and very m m metaphorical and uh, uh, undoubtedly unique production that is uh, this one. Anyway, continue to enjoy the podcast and uh, pick up a couple of our books as well if you want to support the show and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>